Thanks for joining us today. I'm Rob Parker, lead pastor at The Plant Church. Our vision is to know Christ and make him known. If you are interested in getting connected or if we can help you in any way, email us at info at theplantchurch.org. now for uh, two weeks. This will be our third week. Uh, and what we're doing with this series here is, is we're talking about um, kind of recognizing the state of how things have been in our lives in the last 18 months in particular. Uh, how we have been shaped and formed by the absolute madness that we have lived through in, in a lot of ways. But also recognizing that some of the madness was also already there before that. And, and we're now going, okay, as we move into September and we, we relaunch and kind of kick off the fall as, as a campus, because we only had a few weeks before the pandemic starts, as we move into this new normal and this new way of life, what is God calling us to do? Who is he calling us to be? So we've been looking at different tools for the journey. First, we needed direction. We, we needed to know where we were headed. And, and then last week, we talked about how we needed peace for this journey and how, how we get peace through Jesus. And today, uh, we're going to continue uh, talking about things we need for the journey. And we're going to talk about grace for the journey from Psalm 123. And talk about uh, grace that we need. Now, this is like a little bit of a, a theological buzzword. If you spent any time in church growing up, you've, you've heard the word grace used a lot. So we're going to talk about it in maybe a slightly different way than it's usually thought about. It's still connected to that, but I want you to think about grace, but I also want you to think about this idea of graciousness, uh, of living your life gracefully. Uh, and they're, all, they're all connected ideas and, and terms, but that's how I want you to think about this a little bit as we get going today. Uh, because how many of you probably needed or probably needed to experience a little more grace in the last 18 months, right? We had some pressure situations. Uh, may, maybe you spent too much time reading the news and you're like, I just need to hear something gracious for a change. Uh, or, or maybe you were just caught in a constant uh, cycle of uh, being too hard on yourself. Maybe you're trying to work and take care of your kids and do their schooling at the same time. And, and you can get overly critical of yourself and not extend a whole lot of grace to yourself in a really difficult time. So for many different reasons, we all needed to experience some grace. And, and in a lot of ways, the opposite of grace is contempt. Any of you ever experienced contempt from someone? No, never, never. We've got some sarcastic people in the room today. I speak sarcasm fluently, so that's good. Uh, uh, yeah, contempt. Anyone ever just experience uh, a conversation with someone and they were just nasty, right? Or, or maybe they didn't like overtly yell at you and they didn't name call you, but their tone was just like you felt icky after, you felt terrible, at, or like, is there something wrong with me? Right? You, you ever have one of those conversations? Or, or maybe, this, I'm sure this doesn't happen to any of you, but maybe you were the one that had the tone. Or, or, or you spoke, uh, spoke with contempt towards someone. Maybe you were having a hard day, and it was just a lot easier to brush someone off with a little bit of a jab or taking a dig at them. Uh, spouses, husbands, wives, um, man, the digs come a lot when you're feeling the stress and you're tired, right? We have a one-month-old at home, and in the middle of the night, because we're up every night, uh, there, there are little digs and little jabs that we have to uh, apologize for almost every single night, it feels like. Uh, and, and that's all part of contempt. What is contempt, really? What is this? Uh, contempt is, I'm not going to put that one up yet, actually, I'll just read this. Contempt is indifference or disdain for the hurt or hardship of others. It's due to a perception of lower moral standing. You're seeing someone as having a lower moral standing than you. Uh, you think they have character defects, mental instability, inferiority, or general unworthiness. They're not worth me being kind to, essentially. Anyone ever felt like they weren't worth being kind to because of the tone someone took? Or maybe we've honestly, we haven't said it in these words, but we've treated someone as if they weren't worth being kind to. 
Psychology Today uh, article written by Dr. Stephen uh, Stasny. He said, the experience of contempt, the person who's being contemptuous, the experience of contempt is powered by adrenaline. So you have an adrenaline rush when you treat someone with contempt. Did you know that? When you take a dig or a jab at someone. It makes us feel, he says, temporarily more confident and self-righteous, but at the same time, less humane. To the extent that it violates deeper values, contempt makes us vulnerable to unconscious guilt, shame, and anxiety. So we don't feel great about ourselves subconsciously when we're contemptuous to other people. Uh, the uh, Gottman Institute is the foremost uh, institute for uh, studying marriage and relationships. Uh, they, they've done extensive research, research over decades and decades about what makes for a good marriage and why marriages fail. And one of the, they have four kind of key indicators of whether a marriage will succeed or not. And you can really apply this to any kind of relationship. But they said the number one indicator is contempt. Number one is contempt. And these are just some of the different ways. See if this pops up in any of your relationships. These are some of the ways that researchers and clinicians measure the degree of contempt in a relationship. Refusal to consider any mitigating circumstances uh, about the partner's behavior. So you don't have any empathy. Uh, refusal to try to see the partner's perspective. Negative labeling like you're lazy or stop being such a nag. Attributing malevolent intent, you think they're out to get you. Diagnosing uh, the other person with uh, some kind of personality or emotional disorder. Nonverbal indicators, I'm really guilty of this one, I'll tell you, uh, such as the tone of voice, a facial grimace, uh, gritting the teeth, the eye rolling, the sighing, the uh, during a conversation, dismissive tone, mocking other people's speech, gestures, or even a body posture that says, I don't care what you're saying right now. And also the number of negative expressions about the other person outweighs the positive expressions. This is what researchers and, and clinicians uh, look for when they're looking for contempt in relationships. They, the studies are done primarily about marriage relationships, but remember, these are not limited to marriage relationships. It can be relationships with coworkers, with friends, with neighbors. Uh, contempt is all around us. When you go through this list, you go, oh, oh, that counts? Oh, that counts too? Oof. I know, I went through that list and I, it was brutal. But why does that happen? Why is it so easy for us to just keep taking digs at people? Why is it so easy to do? It actually has much more to do with our own view of ourselves, believe it or not, than it has to do with the other person. So basically, how much grace are we willing to give ourselves versus, uh, is going to determine how much we're going to give other people. Uh, this is again from Dr. Stasny. He says, although aimed at others, contempt, it's filled with hidden self-anger, if not full-blown self-contempt. It's impossible to like yourself as much as you deserve while you're feeling contempt for someone else. Did you hear that? It's impossible to like yourself as much as you deserve while you're feeling contempt for someone else. And he goes on to say, mentioning this adrenaline thing again, the adrenaline of contempt, that hit of feeling really confident and self-righteous, it actually masks depression. It, it can temporarily increase your energy, make you feel stronger, more powerful. But the problem is, he says, you have to stay contemptuous most of the time or you'll crash back into your depressed mood. Contempt almost always, he says, alternates with bouts of worry and depression. Now, sometimes there's clinical depression, something I really recommend you see a therapist about. Sometimes you'll just feel really down on yourself, a lot of self-hate, a lot of self-loathing. He goes on and, and says this, he says, in addition to psychological harm, uh, like mentioned above, he, he, uh, contempt can lower the efficiency of your immune system, and it can often cause things like minor physical ailments, coughs, colds, flu, aches, pains, severe physical symptoms, and chronic exhaustion. How many of you are excited about your contempt in your life right now? 
So although uh, contempt is aimed at others, he says, it's actually filled with self-hate and self-anger and self-contempt. That's interesting to me. Pastor, why is that interesting? I'm glad you asked. Now, when you see someone who's nasty, when you see someone whose tone or you experience someone's tone as contemptuous or arrogant, there's actually a good chance that they're drowning in self-hate. Think about that for a second. Think about the really rough people you deal with in your life. There's a good chance they hate themselves and they have a lot of self-loathing. Think about this. When you yourself are being nasty, contemptuous, arrogant, there's a good chance you're drowning in self-hate. So I'd suggest uh, many of the arguments we have, a lot of the conflicts, the jabs and digs we've taken at people over the last 18 months in particular, but beyond that, it's fueled not so much uh, by our hate of others or our disgust with how people are acting in the world. It's actually probably more fueled with our own lack of self-confidence and our desire to feel confident, and we need to get a little boost of adrenaline here, and so let's feel confident by trying to hate others, but it really is just a reflection of the fact that we're really not happy with ourselves. We're, we're not confident in who we are. We're, we feel this intense sense of lack. How many of you uh, just kind of lost your way at some point during the pandemic in this last 18 months? You, you kind of just floating. You can only watch Netflix for so long before you're, you're just kind of like brain fried and you just don't know what to do. You, you, you can't go see people. You're talking to everyone on Zoom. Man, life groups over Zoom, I never want to do that again. That, that was rough, right? You just reach a point where everyone's like, yeah, I'm not going to show up anymore. It, honestly, it's hard. It's, it's hard. And, and, and at some point, we, we lost a sense of self-confidence maybe that we had. Maybe our self-confidence before was a bit of an illusion. Maybe it was a fantasy. But, but whatever it was, we lost it. And we found ourselves needing to do something to kind of claw it back. Maybe this happened in the last 18 months, but maybe this has been a pattern for your life. We actually thrive and have thrived on opportunities to show contempt to others because it's giving us that sense of significance, self-righteousness, and self-importance. But here's the problem. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. That as yourself part's really important there. We kind of gloss over that. We go, right, I got to love my neighbor. But how do you love your neighbor? As yourself. So you actually don't have the ability to love other people. I don't have the ability to love other people more than I love myself. Did you know that? People who really love them, people who love other people well, and you're like, wow, they just, man, I, I'm just so comfortable being around them. They don't, they don't get offended, even though, like, I've done all this stuff that's wrong. Uh, you know, I, I, they, they never, like, bat an eye. They just ask questions about how I'm doing. They want to get to know me as a person. They're not, like, caught up in all the stuff. It's probably because they're pretty secure in their own love of themselves. So I'd, I'd suggest to us that, that part of what you might have experienced in your life or just the last 18 months or whatever uh, is due to the fact that maybe we're trying to love ourselves from the wrong place and we just keep getting disappointed. A lot of us maybe have tried to satisfy every need internally. We've tried to do the best we can during this, this season. I found myself at times feeling the need to kind of step up to people when, when things would get tense and challenge people. And a lot of times that was just more about my ego and, and me just kind of wanting to show that I was strong and feel good about myself and really had nothing to do with uh, actually loving the other person. 
And we keep trying to satisfy our own needs. We try and provide for ourselves. Maybe our, our own ambition and our careers. Maybe we've had things that have failed and gone wrong. And, and the more we kind of live in this fantasy world of I can depend on myself, I can provide for myself, I can be everything for myself, uh, the more we're probably going to start to hate ourselves at some point. Because there's going to be things we can't provide for ourselves. There's going to be this sense, this nagging sense of dissatisfaction. There's going to be a point where we look ourselves in the mirror and go, I'm disgusted with you. Anyone ever done that? I've done that. I don't like you. I don't like myself. Anyone ever just been honest in a moment of clarity and just said, I really don't like myself? You ever been there? We can't help ourselves, folks. And here's, here's what this, these, uh, this psychologist pointed out, and this was revelatory for me and I think is key for us. Our self-dependence has created an environment of contempt. Our dependence on me doing it, me coming through, me showing my strength, me reaching my ambitions, and, and failing more times than we want to admit creates an environment where we just don't like ourselves and aren't happy with ourselves, and it leads to how we treat other people with contempt. Our self-dependence has created an environment of contempt. But here's where Psalm 123 comes in. Psalm 123 is good, good, good news for us. It, it, this is four little verses we're going to read. And, and I really want you to let it wash over you as we read this, because here's the good news. While self-dependence has created an environment of contempt, dependence upon Jesus creates an environment of grace. So I want us to read Psalm 123 together. I lift my eyes to you, O God, enthroned in heaven. We keep looking to the Lord our God for his mercy. Just as servants keep their eyes on their master, as a slave girl watches her mistress for the slightest signal, have mercy on us, Lord, have mercy. For we have had our fill of contempt. We have had more than our fill of the scoffing of the proud and the contempt of the arrogant. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we just ask that those words of the psalm wash over us. That we would truly cry out to you and say, we have had our fill of contempt in this world. We have had our fill of contempt in so many ways. But we ask today, Jesus, that as we learn to be dependent on you and not ourselves, that we would live in an environment of grace that will sustain us for this journey. In your name, Jesus, amen. So grace, we want to have grace. We want to live in an environment of grace and dependence on, on Jesus is what gets us there. What I want to do is I just want to talk about, I'm going to just do two things here this morning. First, we're just going to walk through these four verses, very simple, and I just want to describe uh, from the text, uh, just to kind of give us like a really solid understanding of what Psalm 123 means when it talks about dependence. What does it really mean to be dependent? And then the second thing I, I want to do is I just want to give us four very uh, practical ways uh, that you can uh, begin to practice dependence on Jesus. So that's what we're going to do. Two things today. So first, I just want to walk through some of the textual things here uh, from these first two verses that help us get an understanding. What does it really mean to be dependent on God, dependent on Jesus. Right in verse one, I lift my eyes to you. Extremely important language here. I lift my eyes to you. This is the first of these Psalms of Ascent that we've been going, doing, Psalm 120 through Psalm 133. Psalm 123 is the first one that addresses God directly. All the others talk about God, what God's doing, everything like that, but hear this language. I lift my eyes to you. Oh God. 
This is a direct conversation with the one upon whom all of our dependence rests. We're not talking about him to other people. We're not saying, you know, maybe I should go to God. Someone's not telling me, maybe you should go to God. I'm going to God directly to him. How many times do we talk about God, talk about going to God, talk about how it would be good for me to maybe speak to God about this? I wonder what God thinks about this, but we don't actually lift our eyes to him and say, I am here with you, God. What are you saying? What are you doing? What are you up to? The first step towards dependence is a step that says, I lift my eyes to you. Away from, like we did with our hands earlier, with the problems that we have. I'm not going to lift my eyes to this. I'm not going to find the latest self-help book. I'm not going to find uh, a news story or, or some uh, popular uh, cultural icon that will help me sort through this issue. I lift my eyes to you. Second, here in the text, this is so important. It says, oh God enthroned in heaven. Enthroned in heaven. Why is that significant? Why does that matter? Uh, we, we, we think about heaven and earth uh, very like dualistic, uh, a lot more like Plato than the Bible actually talks about heaven and earth. So the way Plato talks about, quick philosophy lesson because you guys know I'm a nerd, um, Plato would talk about two distinct realities, right? There's the physical world, that's bad, and there's the spiritual world, that's good. That was his, his basic idea of the world. What happened was, is later in church history, that got taken and plopped on top of the Bible, and they said, oh, that's what the Bible says. That's not what the Bible says at all. In fact, uh, God blesses humanity. It blesses our physical existence, and, and that's all the ultimate hope of, of, of the world, that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. God's not going to be like, get rid of that. Let's just do spiritual. That's what's important. So your physical bodies matter. The life you live here on earth matters. So, but that also means that uh, while this world matters, heaven is not some far off place that we can't get to. And I hope that if I pray loud enough, God will hear my prayers. That's like the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Elijah when, when they were trying to see which God was more powerful. And all the prophets of Baal are shouting louder and louder and louder. And, the, and Elijah's just going, maybe your God can't hear you. They, they've got this idea that they've got to try and get God's attention, get their God Baal's attention because heaven is so distant and disconnected. But the reality of the pilgrim traveling to Jerusalem, which is what these Psalms are about, is they're going, remember, to the temple. And remember what the temple is? It's the place where heaven and earth meet. It's actually, when you see uh, descriptions of where God is enthroned, you know what his footstool is? In the Old Testament, you see reference to the footstool, it's the temple. So the ancient Israelites saw God as being so massive and powerful and great. Yeah, he was in heaven, but he's so big, his feet are here on earth. He's with us is what they're trying to get at. That's the theological point. That's what they're trying to say to us. And now, as, as the church, this is what, who Jesus is. He's both fully God and fully man. He's, he's heaven and earth brought together as one. And, and Paul, the writer in the New Testament, tells Christians, followers of Jesus, you are the temple. You're the place where God meets people. That's crazy. That's you. If you're following Jesus, if you are in Christ, you are the place where God wants to be enthroned. He's not far off somewhere. He's with you. And this is so important because we, we, we pray and we, we want to look to heaven and we start to cry out, God, where are you? But he's right here. He's right here. He's close. And not only is he close, he's enthroned. He is in control. He is on the throne in the royal seat of the universe and he is not nervous about anything. Some crazy project comes up at work that you had no idea you were going to be involved with or some massive bill gets dropped on you and you have no idea what you're going to do about it. God's not going, whoo, I didn't see that coming. Let me see if I can figure this out. He is not nervous. He is not nervous. He is enthroned. So we look to you, God, enthroned in heaven. 
And then I love this in verse, uh, the next line here in verse 2. We keep looking. Keep looking. Keep looking. To keep looking at something. This is, man, my daughter at Christmas, she's already talking about Christmas. She, she learned at her, when she's two and a half now, when she, her second Christmas, man, she understands Christmas now. Uh, it was, it's intense. She's already talking about Christmas. But, but when that tree was up, she kept looking. And every morning she'd go back. And every chance she'd get, she'd go over to the tree. This, this is this place of joy, of delight, of satisfaction, of fulfillment. And, and we go there and we keep looking. We keep looking. We go back regularly. We go back consistently. This is not a, I'm going to give God a quick glance on Sunday and then I'm going to go about my business because i got a lot to do today. There's something about looking to God enthroned in heaven and keep looking and keep going back and make it regular and make it consistent that changes us. Something about that process changes us because we're becoming more like him and more caught up in who he is and less distracted by us and what's happening in the world around us. So we keep looking. That's important to the text here. And then he gives this idea, uh, the psalmist gives this idea of we're not just looking like anyone looking. We're looking with a dependence. We're looking like a servant keeps their eyes on their master or like a slave girl watches her mistress. Now, just to explain this real quick, this is very different than our modern idea of slavery or servitude that we would think of nowadays. Uh, This is more like, in the ancient world, guaranteed employment. There was no social safety net. There, there was no social security. There was no unemployment. If you didn't figure out a way to survive, you were going to die. So to be a servant in someone's house was guaranteed not just income, but it was safety and security. Your whole family lived in the master's household. They were all considered part of the household. You, you would have provision you, you would be taken care of. All of the servants and the, the actual family members would protect each other and band together from raiders. There's no police force or anything like that. So there was protection if you were a, a servant in, in a master's house or in a mistress's house. You, you had status. This is incredibly important and often forgotten because of how we think about servanthood uh, today. Uh, to be a servant was to be a representative of the master's household. So you would go to the town or, or, or to the village and you would be there not under your own authority. You would carry the weight of your master's whole household and I am on the master's business and here's what he needs. And there was an, a tremendous amount of respect for servants in the ancient world because they reflected the will of their master. This is incredibly important. This was, you ever had that job where you were like, man, that job, maybe as a kid, I was able to buy that bike because I had that job. That little, that little part-time mowing job or I shoveled all those, uh, lawn, uh, those uh, driveways and sidewalks as a kid and I was able to buy that bike. This is the kind of uh, uh, dependence we're talking about here. There is such a, a love for that, uh, that provision that is provided in this place of dependence, man. When, when I was a kid, I was dependent upon the snow to fall because I loved that job because I got that sweet green cash so I could go and buy that bike that I had my eyes and my heart set on. And that's this kind of dependence here. There's so much good that comes out of this. And so in this passage, God is compared to a master or or a mistress. And we are this dependent servant that never dare look away for a second. We never want to take our gaze away for the slightest moment because we know that everything we have is because of our master. And it's so good to serve him. It's so good to be dependent upon him. He cares for every one of our needs. And I am never in want. And we know that everything I need will be taken care of in the future. Now think about this posture. If we have this posture towards God, this this gratitude, this thankfulness, this sense of, I have 
everything I need. Anything in life, God, is just because of you. I'm so thankful. I, and we live in this place of dependence, this posture of dependence. Think about how that sets itself apart from the culture around us that seeks to make its own way in the world by its own selfish ambition, uh, that wants to find its own opportunity, its own security, its own safety, its own provision, its own status outside of a dependence on God. One thing's for sure, people like that get kind of arrogant. They think they're better. Can't you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps? I did. You see, when we step out of that place of gratitude, of dependence upon God, we can begin to look at all the stuff in our life and go, I did pretty good. Look at how good I'm doing. Everyone, you ever want to watch Anchorman? Maybe not, but uh, he's like, everyone, come see how good I look. He's so impressed with himself, and it led to his downfall. You ever become impressed with yourself because you step out of dependence on God, and you get arrogant in that place? And you know what else happens in that place? You don't have empathy for other people that are struggling and going through a hard time. People that disagree with you, people that stand in the way of you getting what you want. You can get a little contemptuous. Oh, you, you, uh, you weren't able to, to do that on your own, huh? Oh, really? That was easy for me. I don't know why it was so hard for you. Other things we might say. You see, when we stay in that posture of dependence, you get a lot of empathy. You know, I can have a conversation with someone who's having a hard time or, or, or maybe they do something that's disappointing to me, but I don't have to take a dig at them. I can recognize, man, I could be in the same place potentially, but by the grace of God, I'm, I'm not in that place. How can I have empathy? How can I ask you how you're doing? How, how can I listen uh, well to what's happening in your life? You see how that creates an environment of grace when we remain dependent on Jesus? Are you all with me? So really quickly, I just want to provide four practical ways to cultivate dependence on Jesus. And what this is going to do is, is this is going to help us begin to walk out this kind of dependence. You notice I inserted the word grace there, just if anyone's confused. The NLT, the New Living Translation, translates that grace word mercy. Uh, every translation has its pluses and minuses. This is one of the NLT's minuses. Uh, it really is better as grace, not just because it fits my sermon, but that's really what is a better word there, I promise you. I'm not just making things up. Uh, but, but really, it's God giving us his grace. I just wanted to mention that. Uh, so, so here, is, if we're going to walk in that grace, if we're going to be people that know, how do we live dependent? How do I get out of this place of ungratefulness, of thinking I am just the bee's knees? I don't know why I use that term. Uh, I, I, like, I'm just so great, you know, and, and I've got it all together, and I'm not empathetic, and I'm living over here contemptuous of people. I'm not understanding of, you know, my wife who's got to get up with our little child, and, and, I, and I start taking things out on her. If I'm living in this place instead of this place of humble dependence, I need to get back over here. So what are some practices? I can put into my life that'll help draw me back into dependence. So really briefly here, uh, four practices for dependence. First, uh, contemplative prayer and silence. Now, why didn't you just say prayer, pastor? Why did you say contemplative prayer and silence? Here, here's why I said this specifically. Uh, prayer, a lot of times for us, prayer feels like uh, we're just kind of getting something done. Now, let me unpack that so you're not just like, what do you mean? My prayer life's great. And, and this is not a, a criticism about any, the way anyone prays. But sometimes, I don't know about you, but I find myself uh, praying a bunch of things I need and going down the list. God, I need this. I need this. Help me with this. I need patience. And we're good things. I need patience. I need this. I need that. And we go down the list, and, and we're treating God like a giant vending machine in the sky. Great. Okay, I said all the things I need to say. There's my prayer list. Pray for this person, that person. And they're good prayers. They're not wrong prayers. And they're not even prayer. I even think we should pray those prayers. But here's why I mentioned practices for dependence. That doesn't really do a lot for dependence. I don't know how many of you feel like you're dependent on a vending machine. If one's not out of order or it's not giving you what you want, you'll just go find another one. 
And sometimes if we treat prayer that way, if we're not getting what I want, I'm just going to go look elsewhere. Not really, there's not a sense of dependence. But here's why contemplative prayer and silence is different. And this is just a different type of prayer. It's not better than uh, asking God for our needs because we should ask God for what we need and bring those needs and concerns to him. But contemplative prayer and silence is, is about, especially silence, is about being still, get this, and being silent and being alone in solitude. How many of you are extroverts? Put your hands up. How many of you love hanging out with your friends? You love people? Are there really not that many extroverts in the room? This is interesting. We got a, yeah, we got a couple. What? Yeah, Jersey's not an extrovert at all. Jersey's an extrovert, yeah. Uh, but, but extroverts, extroverts find it really hard. You're really good at the second one, community. Uh, but extroverts find it really hard to practice solitude and silence and being contemplative. Because when you, and this is the same actually for anyone, even if you're an introvert, if you get alone, sometimes your self-hate comes to the surface. All the ways you failed, all your disappointments. You ever spend time alone, like maybe your, your family went away and you just can't stand how quiet the, the house is and you find yourself turning the TV on all the time, putting music on, I gotta have the radio on all the time. We have to stimulate ourselves because subconsciously we know we're terrified of what will emerge when we sit in silence. Now, I'm, I'm speaking from experience here. I want you to know I'm not talking about other people who have this problem. I don't like being alone because I don't like what surfaces. And now these, I, don't know you're clear, I want to be clear, this isn't something God is telling me, you're these things. This is my own junk that's just coming to the surface because, you know, when you shake like a, uh, like a, a bottle of like water or something, say it's got like some sand in it, you shake it all up, it's all cloudy. But then as you let it sit still, the sediment lowers to the bottom. And that's really what contemplative prayer and silence is about. We begin to make distinctions about what's good and what's not so good in our lives. We begin to see the picture more clearly. And then by just regular practices of silence, of contemplative prayer, um, we can uh, begin to say, okay, God, I don't like this about myself. And we can just begin to be with God and offer that thing up to him. Now, here's the thing that is really miserable sometimes about contemplative, contemplative prayer and silence. Uh, it doesn't feel like you accomplished very much when you're done, whether you spend five minutes, ten minutes, whatever. You don't really feel like much happened. But here's the good news. You don't have to accomplish much because it's not about you doing anything. It's about you becoming dependent on God. And so you're still with him, and you wait. And when it's done, for me, I usually like to say the Lord's Prayer and I'll say, it was good to be with you. And then I'll continue what I'm doing for the day. Nothing happens. It's really hard sometimes as a pastor. Like, I'll be like, okay, I'm going to go into my time of silence. God's just going to give me this word. It's going to be this great illustration for my sermon on Sunday. It's going to be so wise. And nothing happens. Nothing happens. But that's okay. I don't need anything to happen because my goal is not to have something that I can use. My goal is just to be with him and become more dependent on him, keeping our eyes fixed on him. God, I look to you, the psalm says. Tied together with this is, is the second one. Not only do we uh, need to learn this practice of contemplative prayer silence, maybe spend five minutes if you want to try this. I wouldn't do more than five minutes. Just set an alarm like a timer, and leave it away so you don't have to keep looking at your phone. Trust it'll go off at five minutes. It'll probably feel like an hour, even though it's five minutes, and just sit. Sit in a somewhat comfortable chair, put your feet on the floor, close your eyes, and just say, Jesus, you're welcome here. And then just be with God for five minutes. See what happens. Most likely nothing will happen, and that's okay. Keep going back. You're building dependence on God because it's not about you accomplishing and doing it's about you being with him and letting him be in charge. So this is tied really closely, though, to the second one. Uh, community, and I, I put connected to that vulnerability. Um, first, I, I want to say uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this book called Life Together. And he said this, actually, about silence and, and solitude and about community. He said this. So this is a double-edged sword for you introverts and extroverts. He said, let him who cannot be alone beware of community. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. 
Each by itself has profound perils and pitfalls. One who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings. And the one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. So not only do we need to pay attention to silence and solitude, and as Bonhoeffer would say, if you're more apt to want to be with people all the time, you need to really consider spending some time in silence and solitude. And if you're one of those people who would rather be alone all the time with your thoughts, you really need to make sure you're not neglecting community. And when we say community, we don't just mean being in a room with other people. We mean, and this is why I put this word there, we mean vulnerability. Now, here's the thing about community. One, one uh, pastor friend of mine uh, puts it this way. He, he says, um, we are wounded in community and we are healed in community. There is no way around it. Now, that's scary. Uh, uh, us lone wolves would rather be like, I'm out, forget it. But, but here's the thing is, 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 is when we begin to do true community and we open ourselves up and are vulnerable, there's the chance we could get hurt, always. I, I will even say, you join a life group this fall. Life groups are going to be starting. Yeah, life groups. Life groups are going to be starting uh, the week of September 19th. There is a possibility you could get hurt. It's a great marketing line for our life groups. You might get hurt, but... You might get healed. God uses community to redeem community that's been really bad for us. You can't do it on your own. You just can't. It's not how it works. We all want to be that way. I'd rather heal myself up and feel better, and then I'll go back when things don't trigger me. That's just not how it works. John 1, 1 John 1, 7 says this, But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I want you to notice something. This is where community and vulnerability come together. John says that if you're living in the light, you're open and honest about your life. This doesn't mean day one, by the way, you like go through your whole history and everyone knows everything. That's like probably too much too soon. There's some wisdom to slowly letting people into your life. Uh, but not resisting letting people into your life at the same time. But here's what John, sa- John says here. This is so key. If we're living in the light, meaning we're open and honest, we're authentic, we're confessional, we're willing to talk about our past, even if it's painful with people that are safe. This is what it says. Um, if we're living in the light, opening all that up, as God's in the light, here's what he says. We'll have fellowship with each other. Not we'll be close to God, he says. We'll have fellowship with each other. This goes for confessing sins. This goes for talking about past wounding and pain. When when you truly want to enter into community and do real community, it means you come into the light. You you let the real you be shown, the the self-hate stuff, all all of the self-loathing, the stuff that's gone on in your past, the stuff that's going on in your present, the stuff you're afraid about for the future. And when you get really honest like that, The scripture says we have fellowship with each other. You realize until you let your true self be known, you can't actually be known and loved. You gotta let what's really there be shown and be honest so you can be truly loved. And when the real you gets loved, real healing can happen. When the fake you gets loved, like we like to wear the mask and we wear the church mask and amen and praise God and thank you, Jesus, and things went great for me this week and I'll just read my Bible and pray a little more and it'll be good. When we wear the fake mask and don't talk about what's really there under the surface, we get a false love. People are loving the mask because that's all they see. They can't read your mind. They don't know what's really going on. I can't read your mind, contrary to popular opinion. Um... But really, we can't read each other's minds, right? We open up in safe community vulnerably, and the real us gets known. Have you ever, I want to ask you this, church, and I I mean this because this is my heart for our groups this fall. Have you ever been fully known? Have you ever been fully known? I, 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 like, I'm on, I feel like I could cry almost right now because, listen, not being fully mo- known is the worst thing ever. 
it's lonely. You'd be around a lot of people, but if you're not living in the light and being open, you don't have fellowship with each other. Not because fellowship isn't there for you, not because real community's there for you, not because it's gone or being withheld, but you, you got to show yourself. It's scary and it's painful and it's very slow. But man, to be fully known. There's so much love when you're fully known. Amen? So what does this have to do with dependence? There's an incredible amount of trust and totally being out of control that goes into this kind of vulnerability, yeah? You're really letting go of control if you do this. You've got to be like, God, you've got to be in this because I am so out of control right now and actually I'm freaking out. It's really hard for me not to lash out at people right now because I'm so out of control and it's painful and it's scary and I don't know what to do. But let me tell you, you, you will develop a dependency, a sweet dependency on God if you can come into a practice of community and vulnerability and honesty. Third, these last two very quickly and then we're gonna close. Fasting. Fasting. This, this could be food. Um, you know, I, I'll say this. Just I know this from my wife's a therapist. She spends a lot of time uh, working especially with, with people with eating disorders. Um, be thoughtful about this if, if that's something that you've struggled with. It's not something for me personally that's been an issue, so I, will, I fast food. Um, but if that's not something that you can fast for a health reason or anything like that, there are plenty of things in your life that you're probably dependent on and you self-soothe with and medicate with that you could give up. Netflix, YouTube, your phone, social media. There's tons of things you can fast from. And, and here's, here's what fasting is about. It's about uh, denying the, the self-soothing things that we, we give, that we put so much dependency in, we have so much dependency upon, and prioritizing in that space, it's making space to be dependent upon God in that time. That's basically what fasting's about. Very simply. So when we fast, we, we do a big, as a church, we're going to be doing a big thing called the, uh, the Daniel Fast in, in January, and, and we'll explain more about that when that time comes. But it, there's a certain uh, thing that we'll do as a church, and if you're able to, to fast from those foods, you, you can join us in that. And it's an awesome season through the month of January of, of saying, I am going to take the things that I usually depend on for a sense of satisfaction, and I'm going to say no to them so I can prioritize my dependency on Jesus. Fasting's pretty fantastic. I hate fasting. But it's really good for me. And it's good for you too. Whatever it might be. And then finally, uh, this last one, and this is near and dear to my heart, is the practice of Sabbath. What is Sabbath? I, I, I joke sometimes like a lot of folks... Uh, vision of Sabbath if, if they don't uh, live in proximity to a lot of Hasidic Jewish communities or Orthodox Jewish communities. Their, their vision of Sabbath is like Ma and Pa in Little House on the Prairie and them telling them they can't have fun and stop running around on the Sabbath and that's all they know. Uh, that, that's a very puritanical vision of what Sabbath is. We don't have time to go into a whole teaching on Sabbath today. But here, here's what Sabbath is basically. Sabbath is, it's not about resting so that I have more energy to do more work. Okay? The rest does not serve the work. That's not what Sabbath is about. Sabbath is an end in and of itself. It's about resisting ambition. Here's what Sabbath means, very simply. It's a 24-hour period every week where you say, I will not do errands during this time. I will not do work during this time. I, I will prioritize worship and rest. And that could look a lot of things to a lot of different people. People go out on their boats rest. They go fishing, rest. Uh, some people exercise, rest. I don't know if I would feel like that's restful for me. Some people might love it. Go for a run. You know, have a good meal with family. Maybe bake. Do some of those things that you don't normally get to do. This is one of those things that feels extremely scary because you're like, how in the world am I supposed to fit everything I need to do in my life into six days? It's hard. And there might be some things you have to say no to, some things that don't make the cut, some things that make the deadline. But let me tell you, we've practiced in our house Sabbath for the last three or four years. 
And, and we're, we're not, you know, like I have a Saturday coming up that's it's usually Friday night for us into Saturday evening is the time. We just take that 24 hours. We have pizza together. We put the girls to bed. Jillian and I usually get to eat ice cream in peace after they're asleep, hopefully. And then, you know, the next day is just about being together. I spend a lot of time building blocks and cooking fake food in Harper's Kitchen. Uh, and and that's, it's just about time to be together and be present, Nothing has to get done. I, I can't say no to my daughter on Sabbath in, in, in the sense of no because I have stuff to do. Because there's nothing that has to get done. That's what Sabbath looks a lot like for us right now. But, but, at the, but that also means that I don't have to worry. Like if something I'm worried about in work, right? I, I've got this thing that's got this big project coming up. I don't have to worry about it on Sabbath. Because Sabbath is the day that I rest and say... I am not in charge of how this world works. God is. Sabbath is the day where you and I get to say, I can resist my ambition. I can resist acquisition. I can resist my dependence on self and and trying to grow my own whatever. And all of those things that mark our society, I can simply be with God. And there is no agenda One uh, writer says this, Sabbath is not simply the pause that refreshes, it is the pause that transforms. Whereas Israelites are always tempted to acquisitiveness, Sabbath is an invitation to receptivity and, and acknowledgement that what is needed is given and need not be seized. It's another way of saying, when I rest in God, it makes me increasingly dependent upon him. I don't have to worry if I'm going to have enough because I have everything I need in him. I don't have to worry if I've done enough because I am enough as I am in Jesus. And Sabbath is a practical way to practice the truth that we profess. So these practices are not exhaustive. You probably could have thought of a few other things that can help you develop dependence. But these are, are great ways I have found to help uh, practice dependence on God. Because when we put ourselves in that place of dependence, we put ourselves in a space where we can receive the grace of God. We can receive his, his rest. And, and in turn, we're not anxious or worried about other people not doing things, and we can have empathy for them, and we don't find ourselves in a place of living in contempt or controlling or being heavy-handed. This is a really simple idea in a lot of ways, that we look to Jesus, that we stay dependent upon him, and as we do, we don't have to worry about fighting for position or place. We have everything we need in him. And we find that we're able to love ourselves well because he's loved us well. And we can extend our love to others. Let's stand and we're gonna pray and worship. It was great having you with us today. We do hope that this sermon inspired you to know Christ and make him known. For more sermons and resources, please visit us at theplantchurch.org.